Connecticut and Massachusetts, Z&M Homes buys houses. Sell your property to the local guys. Needs repairs, updates, maybe foreclosure or inherited? No problem. We gotcha. Google or add us on Facebook at Z-A-N-D-M-Homes.com. So, here's some unwanted and unsolicited autobiographical information for you. From 1980 to 1984, I was a nerdy little high school kid living in a small New England town that had not yet been hooked up to basic cable service. In other words, unlike the rest of America, I did not have my MTV. How did I survive? It wasn't easy. Things were a little touch and go there for a while. In hindsight, perhaps not being cable ready might have been for the best, but at the time, not having MTV for their first two years in existence, I felt denied participating in a gigantic cultural movement in which kids around America got to enjoy the mind-numbing after-effects of being endlessly glued to their televisions just to watch Martha Quinn tell you what was coming up next, even if it was another 24 hours of music videos. I wanted my MTV. Sure, there were Friday night videos in ABC, and for a period, Boston had its own UHF video channel, V66, but it wasn't MTV. And when I did finally get MTV, it was totally worth the wait. These days, MTV is largely a vast wasteland of unwatchable garbage, which is also what parents were saying about it 40 years ago. But it was our vast wasteland of unwatchable garbage, and we loved it. However, there were still songs from that era that defined the entire decade, regardless of basic cable access. And during that time, right in the meatiest part of my adolescence, was this deluge of new wave classics that were every bit a part of my youth as Molly Ringwald and asymmetrical haircuts. And among these youth-defining songs happened to be I'll Melt With You by the band Modern English. For the next 40 years of my life, I'll Melt With You has been a song which immediately transports me back in time. It's a song that doesn't just remind me of one or two great moments in my life. It brings me back to about 50 or 60 of them. And if we're being honest here, it's one of those songs that got everybody off their feet, not only in high school, but through college and many, many years beyond. But there were some other amazing songs from modern English, too, like Hands Across the Sea, Swans on Glass, Life in the Glad House, all just incredible. But I'll Melt With You is one of the few songs from the 1980s where even the most indignantly critical person imaginable deep down loves this song. And anyone who says they didn't is probably a big, fat liar. And much like the enduring magic of that song, Modern English has endured the test of time as well. This is a band that has just wrapped up their latest tour in the States. They've released a fantastic new single called Long in the Tooth, and they're about to release their ninth album called 1234 early next year. So in a very real way, I can't begin to tell you how thrilled I am to be talking with Modern English lead singer Robbie Gray. He's my guest today on Baxi's Musical Podcast. It's, I'm, I'm so glad you're able to do this today because uh, I'm of the age where I don't believe modern English has ever really been out of, out of my life. So, uh, <laughs> so am I. Oh, I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure. I've just been listening to, to Long in the Tooth, which is, which is out now. It's a great single. 
And then the new record is coming out next year, one, two, three, four. This is going to be Modern English's first, correct me if I'm wrong, your first studio album in, in, in eight years. Tell me a, a bit about that. I think 2017 was Take Me to the Trees. So it's about six years. Six years. Uh, yeah, well, it mainly, mainly it was down to lockdown that um, in England when COVID happened in 2019, 2020, um, we were kind of stuck at home a lot. But in England, you could travel. You could go out to work. If there was three people or whatever, you could go and do it. And Mix Studio was only half an hour from me. So we kind of we started sending files to each other because we were stuck at home. And then we met up in the studio and started writing this album, one, two, three, four. So it was written round about COVID time, really. But in, in recording it, you've had Mario McNulty is, is the producer of this. The dude is no yeah. dude is no slouch. I mean he's he's worked with some <laughs> pretty big people, Bowie and Lou Reed and, and uh Laurie Anderson, Nine Inch Nails. I mean He's come with uh, quite a, a background. Yeah, I mean, he did his apprenticeship at Philip Glass's uh, studio in New York as well. So, yeah, he's he's a good guy. He's a really amazing engineer. And um, we did the album in upstate New York in a place called Rhinebeck. And um, we kind of spent a month in there. And we did it live. What we, what we tried to do was get away from what you hear all the time on the radio, which is homogenized sort of rubbish. You know, we wanted to have a kind of a live, energetic feel to the music. So that's what we did. We um, basically recorded most of the songs, if not all of them, live and not too many overdubs either. I think Long in the Tooth kind of reflects that. I mean, there's just a lot of excitement and, and energy in, in that yeah. track. It's, it's really, really cool the way you did it. Yeah, I mean, I wrote that myself, actually. For the first time on this album, different people wrote different things. But that particular song, I wrote that in my bedroom in, in 2020 during lockdown. And um, it hasn't changed the format or the speed or anything like that or the energy of it it's been there since the start so it's pleasing to keep all the ingredients you know that originally were in it i know that uh, you know for modern english in particular the pandemic really kind of derailed a lot of things i think it i don't know it was like last year or the year before you were scheduled to come out to west springfield massachusetts to this uh, this big uh, festival called the big e and for whatever reason you weren't able to make the we weren't able to make the, uh, the the travel arrangements to to get here because of the pandemic, but you did make up for, uh, that show the following year. And everyone that I talked to that went said it was so great to see you guys, and it was such a, a a fun show. How is it to get back on the road now without all that restriction and uh, and difficulty of of you know travel and and, and arrangements? Well, we did, we all got COVID actually about. I can't remember if it was last year. I think it was early last year. We all we all were on this cruise ship doing a kind of a gigs with all these different bands. And then we the first day we stepped off the boat or the ship, <laughs> sorry, can't call it a boat, onto Floridian soil. We all got COVID the first oh. gig. So a lot of gigs were cancelled because of that. But yeah, I mean it's been a bit of a nightmare really. It held up all our plans about the album and, and touring. But we're all back on track now, and we've done a lot of work in the last year to to support the album and get ready for the releases of things like Long in the Tooth. It started off by saying, to, you know, when I was in high school in the early 80s, you know, those first couple of records came out. And, and, and I know you've probably answered a million questions about this, but, you know, you know, I'm of that age where, you know, I can't think of too many songs from the 80s that had that enduring legacy of, of I'll Melt With You. It's, just, it's a generation-defining classic. When, when you 
are playing that live now, all these years later. I assume the reaction to it is still pretty magnificent, like it's always been. Like it's one of those songs at a party that once it's hit, everybody starts starts dancing, even even to today. It must be an, an amazing thing to still be playing that song and still get that kind of reaction. Yeah, it's incredible, really. I mean, it, it seems to have a new life of its own since the Internet and, um, you know, glo- everything being so global with one push of a button. Um, yeah, it's brilliant. When we play it live, I don't really have to sing it, you know. <laughs> it gets sung back at me. And, and then we, we tend to get the crowd involved in the in the humming section. And, and live, it is pretty amazing. And when we played the Big E, when we did play it, we did two shows there, One on, I think one on the Saturday and one on the Sunday. Right. And everyone was singing along, you know. It's always great. I, we're not a band that kind of doesn't like the fact we've had a hit record, you know. We're not one of those kind of bands, really. <laughs> I mean, when we wrote it, it wasn't – we had no knowledge it was going to be massive. It was just another song on the album. But, we, in fact, we thought it was a bit too poppy for us at the time because we'd just done Mesh and Lace, and we were a bit sort of unsure of it. But um, basically what it does is it pays all of our bills – and it means that it gives us a chance to do things like our new album. Without I Melt With You, we probably wouldn't be able to do that. And and even uh, you re-recorded the song, I think, in 1990, and it's still charted. I mean, that that doesn't happen yeah. very often. I think that just shows the power of, of that particular song. I mean, we did a lockdown version of it as well during the pandemic. I don't know if you've seen that. We all, we're all in different houses, different people in different places on the planet. And um, we played, you know, did a lockdown version. It sounds really good. You got over like one and a half million views in 2020 2021 amazing when i read i was reading some other interviews that you had done and uh the understanding i had of it was that it took you like a few short minutes to write the lyrics like it was just like every great classic and it, it, it always seems to be well this took no time at all to write and it winds up being the biggest song of your career i think with with songwriting you can pretty much tell if it's if it's happening within a 10, 15, 20 minutes, if the, the chords are working and it feels like like it, the sound of it's really exciting and it's got something going for it. You know, that's what happened with I Melt With You. I wrote the words, the lyrics. I just sat down and wrote them in about 10 minutes on the back of a piece of paper in, in London in my house. I mean, it was pretty amazing to do that because I knew it was good when I was doing it. I could tell the flow of the verses and the and the metaphors and the sort of imagery were all really good. You know, I remember when I was listening to those songs, you know, back in the 80s, one of the things that always struck me was like, okay, that's a great song. But there were a ton of great modern English songs. It wasn't just that one. That one seemed to connect a little bit more. But, I mean, I remember falling in love with Hands Across the Sea and Swans on Glass, Gathering Dust. I mean, I loved those songs. And it it always seemed like this was a band that, you know, was much deeper than I think most people really understood at the time. There was a whole great catalog of, of songs that couldn't, you know, possibly reach the same level as an I'll Melt With You. But I always thought there was just so much more depth involved. Yeah, you're right. I mean, we play all those songs you mentioned in the set. It, we're playing in Athens, Georgia tonight. Yeah. It's the first time we've been here, and we're playing all those songs in the set tonight. 16 Days Into Gathering Dust, Swans on Glasses, The Encore, After I Melt With You. I mean, we do we do try. We're playing Black Houses from Mesh and Lace. You know, we, we try and get our early sound in there as well because – it's very important that period of time for us when we signed to 4AD and, you know, and had that, they gave us a, a, a sort of five album deal and, and the scope to do whatever we wanted to do and gave us a wage. I mean, they were a really good label. Ivo 
what's Russell signed us. Um, you know, so without that beginning, you wouldn't have I Melt With You, really, so or anything else. So, you know, the, the early part of modern English, I think, is probably the most important period, really. When I think of, like, 4AD, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting that you guys were, you were signed to them. Because when I think of 4AD, I think the Cocteau Twins or, you know, this Mortal Coil, which, you know, we were a, a part of, or, you know, Clan of Zymox and all those bands. You know, it wasn't really, many people would call, a, they were cranking out mainstream hits. When you listen to uh, Mesh and Lace, I mean, it really does sound like a 4AD record, but it, there was a leap that happened between the first album and, uh, and the second album. What, what was it that was different between the first and second? Was it just purely about Hugh Jones being the producer, or was it you know, something more intentional than that? Well, we've never done the same thing twice. That's half our problem, really. Uh, we're always <laughs> confusing our public. Um, yeah, I mean, it, Hugh Jones had a lot to do with it. I mean, we didn't want to record Mesh and Lace again, that's for sure. But, and it was a complete opposite to it. But we always wanted to use orchestration and acoustic guitars and flutes and try and do something like that. And Hugh Jones kind of showed us the pathway to that. We wouldn't have been able to do it on our own. For, for instance, when we first started, we couldn't really play. We were more about textures and atmosphere. That's why Mesh and Lace is more like a classical album, you know, as pieces stuck together because we didn't know about songwriting. With After the Snow, Hugh Jones showed us the art of songwriting, really which is a bad thing in some ways because we've never been able to get rid of it since. Because once you learn that, <laughs> you can't unlearn it. But he did show us the way to craft songs, verses, choruses. Going back to I Melt With You, that's the first song that I sang on, on that album with, with Hugh Jones doing the After the Snow album. And it's the first song I'd ever not shouted on because during all my career, I'd just been trying to put myself across with volume, you know. And, and he, he said, just talking to the microphone, I was like, what? You know, what's going on? <laughs> so that's probably why you get that feel in, in the verses of Mesh and Lace. It's almost narration, really, rather than sung. So with Hugh Jones, I mean, he had had a, a quite an extensive resume before, you know, getting to modern English. I mean, he worked with, you know, The Damned and Echo and the Bunnymen, The Undertones and, and, and many, many others. How did he get you know, hired for that job to start working with you? Did you seek him out, or was that something that, that 4AD suggested you, you do? 4AD, um, he, I can't remember exactly what happened, but he came to a concert we did in London at the ICA, on, which is like a, an art place. It's like an art, contemporary art place, and it was like an underground kind of concert on New Year's Eve. And I remember he came backstage, and, you know, he was interested in doing, you know, the album, and... Um, and we said to him, well, <laughs> which songs did you like? He said, you haven't got any songs. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you could see the potential there. And, you know, and Ivo for ad liked him. And we got on really well with him. He's a really nice guy here. I went to visit him, I think it was last year in Cornwall, where he lives in England. I hadn't seen him for a long time. Still the same guy. And, yeah, it was really just a marriage of Ivo probably getting a phone call, him coming to see us and liking us as people. Yeah. That's how it happened. You know, a lot of times that, you know, that first album, um, you know, is always about, you know, a, a band trying to find its voice, maybe using its influences to, to kind of inform what they do. When I heard, when I, when I still listen to that, the, that first record, you know, I still hear influences of like a lot of Gang of Four, maybe a little bit of Joy Division, maybe some Wire in there. Tell me about, about that and what kind of influences, uh, you know, were, were driving you. I mean, 1980 was a pretty, 
I mean, a, a pretty seismic change in the way music was was heading. It just came off, you know, the, the first you know two years of punk, and now all of a sudden there's like a there's like a post punk type of uh, progression there. What was it that was in, inspiring you guys at at that time? Well, you pretty much hit it on the head there. I mean, you call it post punk. It wasn't called anything then. It was just called right. music. But it was, but it was sort of, um, you know, punk had happened and bands that were just starting up. You know, you've got to remember this was the Margaret Thatcher period. You had Ronald Reagan over here in America, but we had Margaret Thatcher, and it was a really dark period in in England's history because nobody had any money. You know, I mean, we were stealing equipment to start the band. <laughs> I'd go to various sort of nightclubs and DJ places and, and steal microphones and th- things like that just to get going and all the bands were doing that i don't know why it was just that point in time you know joy division after warsaw and the cure you know you name it gang of four like you said who i saw just recently and we might do some gigs with them because that would be a good double bill i think oh, yeah. um yeah that, that would be good they were we played with them at cruel world and i made a point of going to see them they were great um yeah i mean it was just a it was in the air. There was something in the air. And nobody was... The thing between English musicians and American musicians is, at that point, the bands weren't really musical. They weren't like American musicians. They were always really good at playing. It was more about texture, atmosphere, you know, effects. So when you hear, hear the first Joy Division, you know, Cure, whatever it is, Susan the Banshees, you can hear effects everywhere because... That, that was the style of the sound that people wanted to make. It wasn't so musical as maybe as American bands would have been at the time, you know. It, but it was something that was really important. And I think it was one of the most important moments in time for, for, for British music, really. I absolutely agree. There, there was something that seemed to happen along the way where all of a sudden those punk bands that didn't know how to play their instruments suddenly figured out how to play their instruments and suddenly figured out how to yeah. you know, write songs and, and, and think about things like, you know, performances and, and, and playing yeah. live. Something, something definitely changed in the water in, uh, in Great Britain at the time. And, and, you know, as a result of it, you've got this, you know, this incredible pile of, of music from those early eighties that, you know, I, I mean, I'm still listening to that stuff. Well, it seems, well, I, what I enjoy about it is the, the fact that it seems to have come sort of full cycle. You know, everything seems to have come round, and you can hear, for instance, in bands like Fontaine's DC and the Idols, yeah. you can hear you can hear the same sound really. And it's taken a long time, I must admit, for I think for music to get to get round again. I didn't really enjoy the '90s. I wasn't really a a Britpop fan or anything like that. Um, but and dance music was more important in England at that time. There was a big resurgence of house music and underground dance music, and that was you know, rock music and indie music sort of took a back seat during that period, really. Yeah. Not, I don't think so much in America, but in England. No, we definitely, we definitely didn't have that. And, and one of the things that, uh, that we did have that, uh, one of the great disappointments in my life is that my hometown in, uh, in Massachusetts at the time did not have basic cable service. So that meant that I didn't get MTV until after I went away to college. So those first couple of years of MTV, yeah, I didn't really have access to, but the importance of MTV to not just the American music, but certainly British music at, at that time was pretty powerful. How do you see MTV playing a role in, in modern English's history? Massive. It yeah. was massive. I mean, it was very, very new. I mean, 
can you imagine they they, they weren't going to play Michael Jackson because he was black at that time? I mean, that that's how times have changed. You know what I mean? Right. But back then, anyway, that our video we recorded for "I Melt with You," we did it for a thousand dollars. Wow. <laughs> And we carried all the equipment in ourselves and we set it all up and the flame was a Bunsen burner. It was all really cheap and tacky. And it was one of the most played videos on MTV, I think in 82, 83 is incredible really. Yeah. Um, and that everybody who was on there, all the English bands, I mean, it, it was half the reason they got popular as well was the imagery of it. The imagery was important, but I think, you know, it exposed parts of the country to the different, kinds of music that it would never have had access to had it not existed. I mean, my hometown aside, I mean, there were parts of the, of the Midwest that would, that would never have stumbled across the cure or, uh, you know, echo and the body at the time. It would have taken years for them to kind of, you know, crack that, that audience. But MTV certainly opened the door for a lot of great music. Yeah. I mean, it did. And we used to, you know, go to MTV a lot. I actually did a. I actually did MTV in London for about a year as an un, overnight VJ. So I got kind of into that as well for a little while. But yeah, there's no doubt. In the early days, it was a real massive influence. It really was, and you could get to see the, the people that were making the sound you heard on the radio. Because, for instance, I melt with you. It was. I don't know how it happened, but. One of the major stations, when there used to be major radio stations all, all over the different cities, picked up I Melt With You on import. It wasn't even released and started playing it on their radios. Then about like wildfire, all of a sudden, all the major radio stations were playing it, you know. Yeah. And it wasn't even released. This is the truth. <laughs> and then Seymour Stein from Sire Records, who'd signed everybody to Mode, you know, you name it, every English act. I think he just thought, if I buy them all, we'll see one of them will work, you know. And um, we signed with him eventually. Um, but that was all down to the MTV influence and the, the the big radio stations all across America at that time. Like I think it was K-Rock in L.A. and WLIR out in New Jersey. There was loads of them. When I'll Melt With You comes out and, you know, it has suddenly has these legs on MTV. It wasn't. It may not, may not have been the chart hit that people might assume that it was, but you know, clearly it's it's a it's a huge massive hit for for modern English. But moving forward from that, what kind of pressure was there on you to try to repeat that success? Obviously, you know, Four AD had you know some limitations in, in how to manage a band that was maybe growing beyond the scope of what they were able to do for you. But how? What kind of pressure was there? To continue that kind of trajectory there wasn't pressure from us but there certainly was from the business you know i mean hugh jones was was brought in to do ricochet days and he tried to develop the after the snow sound but unfortunately there was too much going on there was too much stuff on on the songs it, you know and hands across the sea was definitely a um a shot at doing an I melt with you too type of thing or or trying to expand on that on that sound but we we didn't feel that really it was more about i think probably Hugh Jones the producer got got something said in his ear <laughs> but i you know 4AD weren't really that sort of label so i don't know it's difficult to say we weren't privy to all the business stuff but we we didn't feel any pressure really do you think that being on 4AD ultimately was the best the best to avoid a lot of that that kind of uh, yeah. pressure 
Well, it certainly would have been. It wouldn't have been like a major label where they would have. That's exactly what they would have wanted. You know, another I melt with you. And we, we we couldn't do that anyway. You can't really sit down and rewrite a song and try and do it again. It just just doesn't work like yeah. that. And if you get found out as well, people don't like it. You know, people don't respect you for it. Don't understand what it is. And melt with you is a one off. You know, one of the uh, the other things that uh, that I read about. And, uh, you know, we don't really have a lot of context uh, here in the States other than maybe MTV, but even MTV, I think, is very different than, than, than this. But you guys did at least two sessions with John Peel at, uh, at the BBC. The importance of John Peel's stamp of approval for a lot of artists really weighed quite heavily. And in, in very real terms, you know, he changed the course of, of music. Uh, in, in a lot of ways, tell me about the experience of, of doing those sessions and and uh, about the importance of John Peel. Uh, I've got some funny stories about that. I've, well, to start with, he was really important because there was no such thing as alternate radio then. It was all you know, bumbling DJs laughing and joking with each other, you know, during the day. But at night, from about I think it was about ten ten o'clock at night, something like that you get all this amazing music that was so unconformist. It was brilliant. And he was at the helm of it, you know, and everybody gravitated in their bedrooms at night with their little lights on listening to the radio. That was John Peel. He was, he really helped so many bands. I mean, for instance, here we go. Here's a story. Um, I was at a nightclub in, in England, in my hometown of Colchester, well before mobile phones and all that stuff. But there was a little phone in the hallway of this nightclub. Anyway, I'm sort of at this nightclub drinking with friends and um, the, the bouncer that came over, one of the kind of doormen and said, there's a phone call for you. I'm like, what? <laughs> you know, said the one phone in the place is rung and it's for you. And there's all a crowd around it. You know? So I go, it's my mother. I'm like, hello. She goes, oh, Robbie, John Peel's just phoned you up. <laughs> I'm like, what? You know, I couldn't believe it. Yeah, you'd actually phone my home, my mum at home, my our home house and sorts. <laughs> To say how much he liked the demo, because I'd gone to, I'd gone to the BBC studios with a demo in my hand and put it in his hand as he walked in to go to work. Wow! And he took it away because he lived locally to us in Colchester. He took a shine to us a little bit, like he did with a lot of other bands, and helped us. It, it was brilliant. But that, like I said, that stamp of approval for you guys. You did two sessions, you know, with him. It's one thing to get. The song, you know, a song or a demo played on his show. It's another thing to be invited for the, to do the actual live session. Tell me about uh, about those. Well, it was pretty straightforward. You just go in, and he always had the same guy. I can't remember his name now. Doing the engineering, he was like, oh, he was like his right hand man. And you just go in and record live. It's all done in about four or five hours. You do what you want, and nobody tells you what to do. Right. The guy just says, "Is that all right?" And you say, "Yes." And you leave, and you don't. We did black hours of sixteen days, you know the the mesh and lay stuff because that's the period that the first the first uh, John Peel session was in. And he, what was good is he used to repeat the sessions, so you, they'd be on, and then you'd he put them on again the next week or a couple of days later. They were always repeated, so people got to hear it, you know, under their bedclothes at night with the little lights on, so their mum didn't know they were doing it. <laughs> you know, he was really important, and a really nice guy as well. Do you remember what the reaction was to at least the the, the first appearance on that uh, on the sessions? Yeah, it was a big reaction because it was you know it was four AD stuff as well, which was a hip label you know, and to be on John Peel and do a session 
just made it even more kind of cool, I suppose. The band today is still primarily the the original members of of the band. You, Gary, uh, Stephen, and and Michael. There've been a few breaks along the way. I mean, that's almost forty five years together, which is pretty ban- uh, pretty rare for for any band. Tell me about uh, you know about the relationship that you've you've had with these guys over the years. I mean, I, I would imagine to be playing you know forty five years later it really must you know say something about the relationship you you have. Well, I think it's it's important to to talk about that because that, that that's that's why the sounds the way it is really. I think sometimes you know we'd go on the road with some bands and there'd be like one original member or two if you're lucky, you know, the singer generally and a load of other people, and it just it doesn't doesn't really work for me. But what's really important is to, is to keep the sound, and if you've got the sound, then like Steve's keyboards, for instance, are very sort of you know he uses analog. MS-20s and MS-10s, Korgs. So there's a lot of noise, you know, mesh and lace stuff. And Gary's always using pedals and effects. So you get a sweeping sound with modeling. So there's a lot of texture and layers. And if you took away one or two of those elements, they wouldn't be there anymore. So we did split for quite a long time, you know, like, and it was Mick Conroy, the bass player, who moved back and he was living near me on a houseboat. And it was only half an hour from my from my home, and he, I didn't realise that. I was at my house in Thailand, and I got this message, a picture of a boat, and Mick saying, you know, and I thought, God, that's only half an hour from where I live, you know, of all the places he could have been. And then we met up and we talked about the band thing, and we got it back together again. So to play with those guys now after, you know, reforming again, I mean, it, it must feel like very comfortable. Or, or, or has there been... You know, enough water under the bridge where there's still tension or, or, or are you well beyond that at this point i think when you get to that age you, you kind of let things go a lot easier you know you kind of know each other so well really yeah when everyone's got completely different lives everyone lives their life very differently but when we get in a room and start playing music it's not difficult really especially with you know gary and steve mick musically it comes together pretty well it's funny you mentioned playing in, in you know some of those '80s festivals where you know some bands have you know got like you know one original member. I mean, to me, I, I, there's a couple of examples out there of bands that are still playing with no original members, and I, I you know, to me there seems something slightly fraudulent about that. But I, you know, I don't know. I mean, I suppose if it's a business, then you know, there, I'm sure there are pressures to keep things going. I've never seen a band with no original members. <laughs> yeah, there are there are really? there are a couple. The band Yes, for example. Oh right. Not one original member in in the band. I think Foreigner was another one for a while. They were playing with, they were all hired studio music, musicians playing oh. the songs of Foreigner. I'm like, how, you know, what would what, what would be the point of that? But but yet it happens. So it, it's it's nice to hear that you know bands and it's an original form are still are still operating even after you know all that time. There are uh, some exceptions. I mean, uh, Echo and the Bunnymen played a. Uh, Cruel World, and they've got the original guitarist, and you know, of course, Ian McCulloch, and they were good. They, they the, set, the song still sounded really epic and right. and really good, but they, they were only two original members. But um, yeah, I'm kind of a, I'm on your side with that, really. Yeah, fifty percent of the band is still better than zero percent of the band. <laughs> yeah, I suppose it is. There's Will Sargent still with Ian McCulloch, yeah. so that, that that's good. So once the album is uh, is released, and it's being released next year. 
I assume you'll be back on on the road with it, or have those plans not been solidified yet? Yeah, well, we're on our sixth week now. I'm knackered. I'm tired. I really am. <laughs> uh, this is our sixth week. We go home next week, um, so that's good. But yeah, we'll be back. You know, we'll, we'll support the album. It will probably be next April, May. I'd imagine we'll be back for another long tour when the album comes out. Well, Robbie, like I said, the uh, the the first single, "Long of the Tooth," is fantastic. I'm I'm looking forward to hearing the rest of the record, and I, and I do appreciate you spending some time uh, talking about it today. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks very much. Absolutely. Thank you, Robbie. Have a great day. All right, mate. Take care, yeah? You too. Bye-bye. The name of the upcoming album from Modern English is 1234. It's set to be released in the spring of 2024. In the meantime, check out their new single, Long in the Tooth. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, feel free to like it, share it, and tell all your friends about it. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. You can also reach me at Bax at rock102.com. I'd love to know what you think. Thanks again to Zenem Home Buyers for their support, and thank you for listening to Baxi's musical podcast.